Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news shortly and of course our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be back and joining us throughout the show. Then with the countdown on to the Paris Olympics in the new year, off the back of the success of the Women's World Cup this year, a highlight of 2024 should be the Matildas campaign. Just a little pressure on Tony Gustafsson first to qualify, then it is fair to say that after the fourth-placed finish in the World Cup against the best the world has to offer, that nothing less than a podium finish could be considered a success in a limited tournament where the reigning Euro champions and losing World Cup finalist England have not even managed to qualify. We'll discuss it all with one of Australia's foremost Olympic experts, formerly of the ABC and host of the about-to-be-launched Sports Ambassador podcast, Tracy Holmes. Then the expectation was that it couldn't get any worse for Manchester United. They travelled to Anfield last year and shipped seven goals. It looked like they were on the brink of disaster and Eric Ten Hag was about to walk off the plank. It didn't happen. They defended extremely well. Did they bring Liverpool down to the level? Maybe they did. We'll ask Jamie Jackson from The Guardian how that all played out and whether the uh, the manager of Manchester United has bought himself a little bit more time and there are green shoots or is it delaying the inevitable edge? It's another big week, just a, a few days out from Christmas. Uh, we'll talk about our plans over the Christmas break towards the end of the show and how we plan to uh, uh, to deliver the show. But uh, it uh, was an unexpected result overnight. Um, I thought that Liverpool would have, uh, would have just walked all over uh, Manchester United, but um, they didn't. No, it was interesting, wasn't it? And uh, it looked, I mean, what do they have, 38 shots on goal or something like that? But uh, they couldn't get a, a win, which meant that Arsenal went back to the top of the table. But for me, it was Crystal Palace's late draw and Roy Hodgson just grinning at Pep Guardiola <laughs> uh, to say, how about that? My kids got uh, got a draw at, at Manchester City. They're five points off the, off the top now, and they head to Saudi Arabia to play Ura Red Diamonds in the semi-final of FIFA Club World Cup. Um, so they're away for a little while. They've got a hectic Christmas schedule. Um, yeah, it's a, the twists and turns in the Premier League at the moment. Um, every week there seems to be some amazing fixtures and none bigger than uh, the next match round when Liverpool hosts Arsenal at Anfield. Hey, well, Derek, I mean, that talk about a blockbuster. Yeah, you've got to be careful not to talk the game up too much because that's what people were doing in the, the Manchester United-Liverpool game and, and predictably uh, it delivered a quite a poor fare, but I think it will be interesting if Mikel Arteta was watching that game. I wonder what he saw. I wonder if he can take a leaf out of Manchester United's book in terms of how they set up. I wonder if he saw any vulnerabilities there. Um, Arsenal and Liverpool will be playing each other quite a lot over the next two to three weeks. So mm-hmm. um, you might think that, you know, the tone for the rest of the season could be set in the next couple of weeks, that's for sure, Rob. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and we'll we'll talk about that um, with uh, with Jamie Jackson a, a little later on uh, when we uh, we talk to him about United and uh, and find out what he saw up close. Well, look, let's get stuck into it. First up, Football Australia have announced that the home leg of the vital AFC Women's Olympic qualifying tie against Uzbekistan will be played in Melbourne at the Docklands Marvel Stadium four days after the away leg in Uzbekistan. We're going to talk to Tracy Holmes about uh, the campaign to Paris next year. Hopefully, it ends up with them 
the Matildas there. Uh, you know, there's certainly a banana peel match, um, Edge. Uh, can we expect? I mean, are you worried at all? I guess is the question. I mean, they did well enough to 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 become one of the four teams to to put themselves in the frame. Um, do you, are there any g- genuine concerns from your end? Oh, absolutely. Um, if you look at the FIFA rankings, the uh, uh, the bullet in the FIFA rankings in the women's is uh, Uzbekistan. They've done it extremely well in the last uh, twelve months. They wouldn't have got into this position in a qualification, getting over the Koreans um, to be able to do that. So, yes, and going to Tashkent or wherever it happens to be, it's not been announced yet where Uzbekistan will host the first league. It's going to be cold. Um, I'm hearing that the Federation is going to base the players in Dubai and fly in the night before the game. They're worried about uh, contamination of uh, food and water and uh, cleanliness and all that sort of stuff. It will be freezing cold. It's likely to be uh, snow on the side of the pitch. So, Geez, you're painting a picture there, Rich. Yeah, having said all of that, um, yeah, we'll, we'll be firm favourites, but you can never, mm. in a two-legged playoff, write off um, a team like Uzbekistan. I think so Peru expected that. Um, that they were uh, were going to be playing in uh, in Qatar, and it didn't work out for them, did it? No, it didn't. But this is different, isn't it? Um, but just a, a bit of pat on the back to the federation. They haven't got greedy with uh, the Matilda success. They're looking. It looks like they're looking for another sellout. Ticket mm. prices: thirty-five dollars for an adult, twenty dollars for a junior or child. If we compare that to the FIFA uh, Women's World Cup, the group stages, Australia's tickets were 41 and Mm. 27. So they haven't um, Mm. lost sight of the fact that getting a full house and um, the impacts of that in terms of support for the team and and broadcast quality. um, Nobody likes to watch a a game of football with nobody in the the ground. So pat on the back for the Federation on the ticket strategy, Rob. Yeah, no, agreed. It, um, and that was one of the, the real success stories of the Women's World Cup, uh, making ticket prices affordable. And they, they had a lot of, uh, of fantastic matches, a lot of sellouts. And uh, and that was one of the the, uh, the real highlights of, of that event. Okay, uh, back home, the A-League men's had another cracking round. Western United came from behind in the Aloisi Derby, ending their six-game losing run and easing the pressure on Johnny Ayers. The man himself watched from the stands, uh, red-carded for kicking and advertising cushion. Melbourne and victory sit top pending the final match played between MacArthur and Wellington as we record and Bruno Fonaroli again amongst the goals and setting up goals in their 3-0 win in the big blue over Sydney FC. We'll talk about that in stoppage time. And midweek Melbourne City have missed the Champions League knockout phase after a late goal to Zhejiang put them at the mercy of other results. Better news for MacArthur and the Mariners in the AFC Cup, both progressing after topping their groups. Now, in the A-League women's, Emily Van Egmond played the final game of her four-match guest stint as the Jets beat Western United 4-2 in Newcastle before inform Western Sydney Wanderers drew one all against the Brisbane Roar and Perth Glory stayed top with an ill-all draw against the reigning champs. Title holders, Sydney FC at Macedonia Park. Victory too good for Canberra United 2-0 and Adelaide beat Phoenix 2-1 coming from behind. The winner with five to go in regulation to Nanako Asaki. Now, this is an interesting one, Edge. Um, we talked to Scott McIntyre last week and uh, hailed the departure of uh, Kevin Musket from uh, Yokohama F. Marinos, and we were expecting a big announcement. But the new job uh, is a Chinese champion's Shanghai port. He replaces the Spaniard Javier Pereira, who led the club to their first title in five years in November but has not renewed his contract. Now, formerly Shanghai SIPG, port of the former club of Aaron Moy, and still have Brazilians Oscar and Hulk on their books. A huge club. They've written the highs and plumbed the depths in a financial success since over the past decade. But uh, but why, Edge? I mean, uh, surely his stock had risen to the point where there was a, a, a more alluring job on offer. 
Oh, look, it's a really interesting question. And there was a lot of really um, ordinary sort of commentary on social media when this was announced, especially on uh, X, uh, formerly Twitter, uh, by Australian fans sort of questioning why Kevin would do it. Um, the Chinese Super League was on a roll until COVID hit. Um, mm. uh, the, the, the catastrophe that was COVID for China and in particular um, the bubble burst over in China. Uh, there was a lot of property businesses that owned football clubs. So um, the Chinese uh, football Super League went, you know, backwards uh, in a, a rate of knots. They closed the country for such a long time. They lost. Don't forget the Asian Cup should be in China mm -hmm. as we speak right now, but it's not um, uh, because because of uh, the, the implications of COVID and the closed nature. So um, I'm expecting the Chinese Super League to bounce back big time. I think it's a good move. I mean, obviously, I live and work in Asia, so I appreciate um, the significance of Asian football. And I would say that Kevin is getting paid a lot of money to go there. And who would begrudge him the opportunity to do that? He's probably getting paid more money than he could get at a middle-ranking sort of European club in a... Um, you know, in a fringe league, whether that be Scotland or Belgium or uh, um, Austria or those sort of places where he was being courted. So for me, um, I think it's a good move. Um, it's a huge market. Um, they're, they're the biggest club in China. Um, they've got really solid owners. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, they've probably got Kevin with a view to having a big tilt at the Asian Champions League. We've seen how significant that competition is of recent years. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, but there's a lot of people in Australia who thought it was a backward move and I must disagree with them. And I think that's a – maybe I'll go out on a limb, Rob, and say a bit of xenophobia shining through. Yeah, well, I don't think it's um, – it's uh, un uh, realistic to suggest that, that that's the case, but uh, equally, China, regardless of, of what they've been in the past and what we can expect in the future, um, are not the elite of world football. And that the trajectory that Kevin Musket was on suggested that you know there were other opportunities. So you know maybe a little bit of both. Now this next story, fortunately, it's not our lead story because it appears to have had a happy ending. Luton Town captain Tom Lockyer remains in hospital following the cardiac arrest he suffered on the pitch during Saturday's match with Bournemouth. The club stated the 29-year-old is stable and responsive, undergoing further tests. Lockyer had heart surgery following a similar incident during last year's Championship playoff following which he was cleared to return. The match was abandoned at one all. Now, on-field, Liverpool missed a chance, as we said earlier, to move top of the Premier League, held to a scoreless draw at Anfield by Manchester United. We'll talk to Jamie Jackson about that. While Manchester City have now won just once in their last six after a two-all draw, as you said, Edge, it was it was priceless watching the reaction on Roy Hodgson's face as he walked up and shook uh, Pep Guardiola's. It, it, it was it was very funny. And um, Bayern Munich in, uh, in the Bundesliga, back to their winning ways with a 3-0 winner over Stuttgart, uh, Harry Kane's double seeing him to 20 goals, 20 Bundesliga goals in his 14th game, a new record. But they still remain second to Bayer Leverkusen. So, uh, Derek, um, it was a, a hectic weekend. I only watched the highlights of that Luton uh, match, and uh, um, yeah, it was uh, it was sort of chilling to to, to come to that conclusion and, and see, you know, Christian Eriksen style the, the same sort of reaction. It seems to you know, it, uh, was it just not reported or are we seeing this more often um, in, in world football? Yeah, there have been a few, haven't there? There was, of course, uh, Fabrice Mwamba about mm. 10 or 11 years ago as well. And, and obviously he, he survived too. And you do see it around global football as well, players dying dying on the pitch. So mm. I think there is genuinely more reporting. But 
uh, Philip Billing on the opposition there for Bournemouth was very quick to spot what happened and and, and got across. And uh, I think it was right, obviously, to call the game uh, off. The fans are very respectful of the uh, the situation, and I think it's just a reminder that even though these players are highly tuned physical specimens who get the best all round medical care and attention and health checks, um, that that they're still they're still vulnerable and. We've just got to make sure that we never uh, drop our guard in terms of the support um, for the players, and obviously uh, to make sure that they're always healthy. But yeah, as you as you said, it was another great round of fixtures, uh, not just in the Premier League. Of course, um, the narratives are obvious at the top and the bottom of the table. Um, Everton's win over Burnley seems particularly. Significant, I think at the top we are we are going to see quite a bit of shifting around now. I, I think um, week to week we're going to see different different teams at the top, at least for the the next few months, just as as this shakes out and and we see who's got the the longevity for for, for a title title race. Villa, of course, kept themselves well and truly in it with that uh, that late two one win as well. That didn't look on the cards for. For long spells for them so yeah all, all, all exciting uh at the top and the bottom of that league Rob. yeah and um the it, the title race does seem to be on because obviously city uh, are not going to be playing for a couple of weeks and uh, and and points not in the bank uh, and the, the the larger that that gap stretches and the more competing clubs there are arsenal villa liverpool uh that they've got to run down uh, it's different than just having one team to run down when you've got three um that that might uh, uh be providing the you know the opposition so hopefully um we're going to see that title race just uh, run run its full course now in the Club World Cup semi-finals: Brazil's Fluminense and Egypt's Al Ahly will meet on Tuesday morning. A match most likely to have been played by the time any of our listeners tune in. With Manchester City and, as you said earlier, Edge Rower Reds to meet the following day for a place in the final. The tournament will have a new winner, with none of the four sides having ever reached a final, let alone saluted. Big news around the Club World Cup this week, with the first edition of the expanded 32-team tournament to be held in the USA across June and July in 2025. Now, Socceroos and Matilda the Central for the Green and Gold Army. We're going to talk a little bit about this with Tracy at accommodation. Really, really hard to get in, in Paris next year. So if you want to get a hold of, uh, of, of, uh, of a room at the very least, well, you know, you better go with the Green and Gold Army. But before then, uh, Qatar, the AFC Asian Cup, is it too late to, to get involved, Edge? Um, you know, we're on the, the doorstep of Christmas. The tournament's nearly on. No, we're still taking bookings up until the end of December. So, uh, yeah, still a last-minute opportunity for people who want to see Graham Arnold's Socceroos uh, go into the tournament as one of the favourites. Don't forget the first matches against India. We play Syria as well. Um, so a lot to look forward to. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Now, a great week for our Aussie trio at Middlesbrough. Sam Silvera came off the bench to score the winner in their 2-1 win over Swansea City. The match also saw a league debut off the bench for Tom Glover, who had played in the EFL Cup midweek. To top it off, Riley McGree is set to return to training shortly as the clock ticks on his foot injury ahead of that very Asian Cup. Now, Nathaniel Atkinson also pressed his case for inclusion for a return to Qatar after his recent ankle injury when he plaudits alongside Kai Rolls in Hearts. Surprised to win, what, nil win 
over Celtic. I'm going to talk about that uh, in stoppage time in a little more detail. Now, we were late to the news last week, but Matt Ryan suffered a fractured cheekbone in the gym and he's facing his own race to the starting line against Uzbekistan. Not ideal preparation for what would be his third Asian Cup. Now, in the English Women's Super League, Sam Kerr was back on the score sheet as Chelsea returned to their winning ways. 3-0 over Bristol. Tegan Micah was a gaining goal for Liverpool as they defeated Manchester United 2-1 and Mary Fowler came off the bench as City. Man City hammered an Everton side, including Claire Wheeler, 4-1. Now, finally, and this was a story that started to emerge ahead of last uh, week's uh, uh, episode of the podcast, Michael Valcanis uh, is keeping the seat warm for John Van Schip as manager of Ajax for a brief spell as JVS is in Australia for his son's wedding. The former Melbourne City and Adelaide United boss oversaw Ajax's two-all draw after leading 2-0 against PSC Zvola on Sunday. But still, a, a great story for, for another um, rising star Aussie coach. Yeah, it certainly is, isn't it? Big club there. They've got some work to do, Ajax, too, because they were right down the bottom of the table, which is just unheard of in Dutch football. But, yeah, um, JVS, uh, obviously his son, stayed in Australia as a result of living out here when uh, John Benship was coaching Melbourne Heart and then Melbourne City. So, uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. And JVS will be back in the helm soon, I'd imagine, yeah. with a bit of a suntan. He, he likes the Australian son, John Benship. <laughs> Oh, good One on. of the best suntans going around in international football. Well, congratulations to him and his family and his son and uh, and also to, to Michael Valdez. Davey, so, Davey Vanship. There you go. Edge, he's across every little detail. Okay, uh, we're going to take a pause there. And after the break, we're going to talk to Tracy Holmes. Tracy, with the ABC, as we all know, for many, many years, uh, international career as a broadcaster, absolute expert and international th- authority on the Olympics ahead of what we hope will be a successful uh, run into and campaign for the Matildas. Of course, the Oli Roo is not yet qualified as well. We'll talk about that at a later date. But the first conversation we're going to have with this Tracy Holmes next on box to box Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. And as we said off the top of the show, the countdown to the Paris Olympics in the new year is on. And off the back of the success of the Women's World Cup this year, we're all hoping that a highlight of 2024 will be the Miltildas campaign, but they've got to get there first. We all know that uh, a tricky opponent in Uzbekistan stands in the Australian ladies' team's way. Tony Gustafsson was the first to qualify that, of course, but I guess the question on everybody's lips is, we do jump that hurdle and qualify. Is anything less than a podium finish in Paris uh, going to be the uh, the marker of success and to talk about it with us is uh, one of our favourite guests on the show, former ABC journalist and host of the about-to-be-launched Sports Ambassador podcast, which we'll talk about as well. Tracy Holmes, how are you, Tracy? No, I'm good, Rob. Thanks for having me again. No, great to great to talk to you, Trace. And uh, um, I guess first question is: uh, Are you excited? You, the Olympics uh, runs in your DNA for as long as <laughs> I've uh, I've listened to you on the ABC. Um, uh, off, uh, you know the I guess the the underwhelming atmosphere around Tokyo with COVID and all that sort of stuff. We're sort of returning to the first of what we hope will be the the, the, the real hype of the Summer Olympics. Um, in, in yeah, the you know, I've been involved recently in a couple of conversations at the IOC in Lausanne in Switzerland, and I heard a briefing um, from some of the Paris 24 organisers and the excitement for them 
is absolutely palpable. And, um, you know, sometimes that's not the case because you get so long to plan these things that often when you get a few months out, people are really tired and they, they just want the thing to arrive. Uh, but, you know, with all the discussions about the opening ceremony along the Seine and, you know, all of the um, arenas getting into readiness and, of course, the qualifications for various sports taking place, such as football, um, it's it, it just seems incredibly exciting time. And one of the things I noted is that you cannot find a hotel room in mm. Paris for the duration of the Olympics. Um, the IOC themselves have been oversubscribed about three times for the number of applications for media accreditation. It, it's like everybody wants to get to Paris for all sorts of reasons. So I think it's going to be... Uh, and incredible games, as you said, coming off the back of Tokyo, which I describe as the loneliest games ever, mm. with all of the athletes competing inside empty venues. It was it was a, a really weird feeling, and you could tell that locals did not want anyone there, and us being there was a, a bit of a, a sticking point for them. Um, but, you know, France is just going to be something else, and um, I think any athlete that gets to experience Paris 24 uh, it's something that they'll be talking about for a very long time. So to the Matildas, Tracy, uh, a double barrel question. Uh, do you see any uh, potential danger um, other than the obvious, the fact that we've got to play them in a home and away tie and they're a quality side in their own right, Uzbekistan, but Australia really should get through. Uh, fourth place in the World Cup uh, indicates an a, a incline in form that um, that. Uh, uh, we'd been watching after um, you know some underwhelming lead-up matches, uh, uh, and and is a podium finish the, the least we should be expecting from uh, Gustafsson and uh, and the side. I think that's what everyone is expecting. That's what everyone is hoping for. Not least of all the players, I suppose, because everybody must be getting pretty sick of fourth place and just finishing outside the medal. So, um, look. I'm pretty sure everyone's got their eyes focused on that. But but we know how hard that is, don't we? And it's one of those things on paper, sure, you can look at it, you know, many different ways. And we have been there or thereabouts for a number of years now. We do keep edging closer. But it's one of those things where, and you would have heard this as much as me, where people talk about, you know, winning becomes a habit. And once you've won, you know how to do it. You know what that feeling is like. And for those that haven't got to that middle position previously as something as big as the FIFA World Cup or the Olympic Games, it's that unknown factor and it's that, that tiny little hurdle from fourth into the medals, which is just so large, and that's the most difficult prospect of all. So it's going to require all sorts of things. We know they've got the talent, the ability, the belief. They've got all of that. Um, it'll come down to uh, how how well they feel mentally and emotionally because you'd have to think it's been such a big year, there's a bit of fatigue that would have set in, and then how they handle the pressure on the day. Tracy, um, obviously for Matilda's fans, for Australian uh, public, the Olympics is a, a huge event. And um, what I'm about to sort of ask you is a little bit sort of an oxymoron to that Um my FIFA, the people at FIFA I talk to say there's a growing momentum within the corridors of FIFA about a discussion in relation to uh, women's football Olympic Games that it should uh, sometime soon revert to an under-23 competition, that 
the emergence of the Women's World Cup has been so powerful over the last two editions that um, they are wanting to reserve the best women's footballers for that event rather than loading up uh, with the Olympics. So every two years there's a, a peak event, especially in light of England or Great Britain not qualifying for this Olympic Games and, um, you know, the underlying um, structure of the Women's Football Olympic Games means that um, often some of the best teams in the world don't qualify because of the way the uh, world structure exists. What do you think? Do you think it should eventually transition to an under-23 competition like the men so that uh, women's competition is um, saved for the FIFA World Cup or should they continue with senior women's football at the Olympic Games? Look, I don't mind. I don't mind either way. I guess it's something that really um, is is something that should concern the players and how they feel about it more than anybody else because they're the ones that have to uh, compete at this level. But I don't mind that option. You know, given that the FIFA World Cup is just so huge, it really is, and we see how the men's tournament works, and I know that the IOC wouldn't be happy about that. You know, they'd like to keep it as, as the main game, so to speak, and the main teams playing. But the other thing is the Olympics market themselves on being the ability to bring together the youth of the world. So in that respect, I don't mind it being under 23, you know, with a couple of senior players thrown in um, to give it that sort of uh, gravitas. But it is also a way if they do that, it also helps to um, expand the level of competition when you're talking about those national teams because you get suddenly some of those who are sort of on the verge who get to experience big competition, big-time events ahead of a World Cup, and I think that really helps as far as depth is concerned. Um, so, look, it's not for me to say one way or the other and, and what I prefer, I, I don't mind. As, as long as there's a Matilda's team there competing, I don't mind what the makeup of it is. Absolutely. And what about Tony Gustafsson? He's contracted until the end of the Paris Olympics uh, campaign. What chances that he'll remain uh, the head coach of the Matildas? Or will we have a new uh, head coach leading into the next uh, World Cup campaign? Well, that's the $64 million question and it's the one everyone's been discussing. You know, is he is he going to um, leap? Uh, is he going to go elsewhere? The offers that uh, he's reportedly being made elsewhere. Um, look, if you were in Tony Gustafsson's shoes, what would you do? If someone came along like the USA and offered you a job, would you take it? Probably. Uh, if some of the high-profile European teams came along and offered you the national job, would you take it? Probably. Um, we know that Australia is probably seen as just that one rung under or a long way from anywhere. That makes it very difficult for anybody that has a family or other commitments. Um, you know, and he's also, he's had an interesting relationship, hasn't he, with the media. Um, yes. Clearly he's had a... a, a a good experience with the players, you'd have to think. There's not too much stuff that's been leaking out as we've seen in the past. Um, but I don't know. You know, if I was a coach, you look after number one and it's the next big thing that comes along. I mean, that's your job, isn't it? And if we were to entice him to stay here, I mean, first of all, we'd have to finish in the medals, for, I think, for him to be offered a job. And I'm sure that if that happened, the next job offer would also have to come with a pay rise. 
yeah, it's interesting just uh, on how he's placed and how he's thought about uh, internally at Football Australia. Uh, you've just been in London. Um, I saw some of your social media posts. Uh, you're, you were at the Women's Super League. I just want to ask you what your reflections were of the experience of the Women's Super League and just how much of an impact um, it's having in England. Well, it was huge. I was lucky enough to be there for the Arsenal-Chelsea game and um, Arsenal walking out, you know, pretty big winners over Chelsea, which might have been a a surprise to some, but it it was fantastic atmosphere. 59,000 people, again, a very, very mixed crowd, you know, from young boys and girls um, to to parents, to cousins, to friends, to grandparents. There, There was everybody there, everybody that you would see walking down the street was at that game. So it wasn't segmented. It wasn't a particular group uh, of the general public. It was everybody. Um, The atmosphere was fantastic. The quality of football was really great. Um, Yeah, it was just, it it felt like you were at the main game, you know, and I guess that's something that we still have a a way to go here with the A-Leagues and um, if, if we ever get to that. But yeah, it was really dynamic and, um, you know, uh, I, I'm sure my husband won't mind me telling you this, but he actually said, you know, I think I enjoy going to women's football more than men's football. So I, I think that's a that's a ringing endorsement. <laughs> certainly is. And I, I know uh, many people say that it is a different game and it's, uh, it, it's, it's really compelling. I, I love it. Um, what about um, the impact of the Matildas in the... Women's Super League. Um, Steph Catley's playing a very key role, as is Caitlin Ford at Arsenal. We know what Sam Kerr's doing at Chelsea. She's in the headlines in Australia every day. But um, there is so many Australians plying their trade. Uh, we saw this weekend past Tegan Micah have a wonderful game for Liverpool. Um, Clear Wheeler played a full game for Everton. So it's not just the headliners, but um, how are the Australians received in the UK? Look, really good. And I think it's just a, it, it's a very easy cultural fit, isn't it? Because, you know, we, we get England. <laughs> um, we speak the same language. Uh, you know, many of the things we do are the same. So it's a very easy fit for the Australians. And I think people love having the Australians there. Um, you mentioned Caitlin Ford. She was absolutely dynamic. Like, and she's just such a workhorse, as we know. Uh, but she's sensational. She's she's just there when you need her to be, and she just goes in for everything. You know, the other one that um, I kind of think about in those same sorts of ways is um, Katrina Gorin. We know, you know, there's talk about her with West Ham. Um, but uh, look, I, I think the Australians are well liked, well loved. Uh, they appear to be everywhere and growing. Um, might be a bit of an Aussie takeover, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's just a it's a really lovely fit culturally. It's very easy for Australians to slip in there. And Tracy, to circle back home um, again, off the back of the Women's World Cup and with the you know the excitement of what we hope will be uh, a um, a successful run into to the Olympics. We've got great stories coming out of the Women's Super League, obviously the, the various other women's competitions across uh, continental Europe, um, South America even, and North America as well. The the A-League women's competition started off with a bang. The Sydney Derby uh, had a, a record crowd, uh, but we, we, we do have to be a little patient still. Um, you, if you're a close watcher, you are seeing a lot of matches being played at, um, you know, what are glorified training grounds in front of a yeah. few hundred people. Um, there was a, a massive 
focus on the legacy of that World Cup. What can you tell our listeners about what they can expect to see from that legacy program and how patient should we do we need to be to see women's football get to the level that uh, we, uh, we know it will inevitably be in, in Australia? Well, I don't know how you guys feel, but I, I'm kind of sick of the whole be patient line. <laughs> and one of the things that I think about a lot is that, you know, the talk always about the chicken or the egg theory. And what we see in the UK is that um, the investment there, uh, the investment in the WSL and, and the broadcasting of it. And I've got to say the reason why the World Cup was so successful as it was, well, one of the reasons, obviously, you want top quality football. That's, you know, a key determinant. And we saw that from teams from all around the world. But media coverage, you know, when it's there, when people are talking about it on radio every day, when it's in the news bulletins every night, when people are blogging, when there's photos everywhere, where people are following the team on the field and off the field, that's what drives it. That's why I'm a Sydney cider and, you know, during rugby league season, even in the off season, you get rugby league stories every single day of the week. That's what drives crowds. And so we, we had that fantastic uh, momentum after the World Cup and, and, you know, the names that became familiar with mums and dads and kids, names that went beyond Sam Kerr, um, which, you know, arguably a lot of people who don't follow football, that might have been the only one they knew. Now they can tell you half the Matildas team without even thinking about it. Um, and, and the media coverage needs to reflect the fact that this is the world game these are the A-Leagues. I don't know what the A-Leagues do to try and encourage, you know, more mainstream um, free-to-air coverage, but it, that's the thing that gives it the momentum, you know. That's the chicken or the egg. Let's start with the chicken um, and then the eggs will come. Uh, and we've seen that happen in other parts of the world and I think that's still a, a bit of a struggle here and I get it. You know, the AFL is a very big and powerful code. Uh, the NRL is very big and powerful. We've got four football codes here. It's difficult. But, hey, everybody, this is the world game and we've seen what it can do. Yeah, look, I, your point is, is really well made, Tracy. I mean, if we, if we wait for uh, the, uh, the emergence to, to occur organically, then we could be waiting forever. I mean, Australia are as good as any country around the world at jumping on a bandwagon. When we have success, we, you know, we're all become uh, uh, archery experts when Simon Fairweather wins the, the gold medal in the Sydney Olympics or, you know, going back even further, we, you know, we're suddenly all talking about wing keels when we win the America's Cup, but who cares afterwards? So, you know, there is a danger that if that momentum isn't really tapped into and built on by the, the powers that be who, you know, we hope know what they're doing, um, that, um, that this could be a situation. The fact that we've got so many big-name players doing well in the top-flight competitions and we've got international tournaments probably balances it out in the other direction, but, uh, yeah. but something obviously needs to be done. Tracy, before we let you go, uh, can you tell us about your new podcast? Uh, you, uh, uh, you, you had... Uh, one of the elite podcasts of, uh, of of this country and particularly around sport analysis uh, with the ticket, um, you built a genre and you pretty much built it on your own listening to, to your final episode where you were the, the presenter, the writer, the, the, the talent booker. Um, uh, and, and the editor, else. the sound editor, engineer, lot. wasn't that good at it? But you know, no, hey, no. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> you did. So, um, so you're going to do, do it, it again, all I reckon. Again. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to do it all again. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But, um, 
you, 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 you found a niche and, uh, and it was a niche for quality and analysis and, you know, that's your byword. But uh, uh, can you tell us what to expect? Is it, is it the same podcast with a different name or are you going to change it up at all? What, what, are, we, what are we going to be expecting from Look, I think there'll be a slight variation, but I pretty much wanted to keep, uh, as you say, it's niche. And I wanted to keep offering those sorts of longer-form, um, in-depth discussions, uh, coverage of issues when they arise that, that need a, a good and decent and thorough working over. I like to keep doing that. And I know just from feedback I've got over the years from the ticket, you know, with people um, from universities around the world, from different um, governing bodies around the world and people who are interested in that detail of sport, I want to keep having those discussions because I think it's really important, you know. Much like you guys know, people who make decisions and control sport, they listen to these conversations. Mm. They, they must listen to these conversations. Mm -hmm. And so to keep having an environment where that can happen um, I think is really important. And I'm looking forward to doing it outside of the ABC, even though it's still going to be the same level of work. Um, and so I've called it the Sports Ambassador because I think every single one of us who works in and around sport, um, and you can throw the athletes into that, you can throw the governing bodies into that, you can throw mum and dads into that, um, who, you know, help groom their kids into a life of sport and through their school years and beyond. Um, we're all ambassadors of sport. We know that there are issues and challenges, and so how do we address those in a constructive way? And I think we do that through conversations like this and conversations that I hope to continue on the Sports Ambassador. Yeah, we'll, we'll be listening, that's for sure, Tracy. Um, and uh, and that, uh, you know, that level of, um, of insight into the, the part that sport plays in, in all of our lives, uh, uh, it, we, um, you know, we can sit back and, and turn the TV on or go out to a stadium and watch a match or you know, go and watch our kids play at a basketball arena or at a footy ground or whatever it happens to be. But uh, you know, the, uh, the, the stories behind sport and, and, and the responsibility that, um, that everybody involved um, uh, needs to take for, for, um, for ensuring that it's, it's presented and represented um, across every area of society um, is, is a daily conversation. So um, good luck with it. We'll look forward to, to tuning in. And, and no doubt we're going to see a lot more of you somewhere else along the line um, uh, as, uh, as the Olympics come up. And, uh, um, you know, if Channel 9 were very smart, I think um, they would be uh, tapping on the shoulder. But uh, <laughs> let's wait and see. Hey, I've got my phone. I can just, you know, live stream on my phone back to anybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, Tracy, uh, good to chat to you. Thanks again. You're always fantastic with your time and, and we really we really do appreciate it. Thanks very much, Rob. Thanks, Michael. Tracy Holmes, um, former ABC journalist of many years and uh, international career across a, a lot of other different uh, media outlets, but also uh, uh, an authority on the Olympics and uh, fascinating to have a chat before we uh, head into what hopefully will be a hurdle that the Matildas uh, can leap over and we can look forward to the Paris Olympics next year. Okay, stick around. Uh, Manchester United, well, uh, a few green shoots there. I was hoping that there wouldn't be at Anfield, but there were. Um, Eric Ten Hag, he uh, lives to fight another day. Jamie Jackson from The Guardian is going to talk to us all about about that next on Box to Box. Hey, Edge. It's Hello, Chemist Rob. Warehouse time. You already... Yes, it's Chemist Warehouse time. What do you got for us? Well, it's nearly Christmas, so if you want to get in and, uh, and buy Good some... Good place to go, Chemist Warehouse, just to fill up the stocking. 
Oh, absolutely. Stocking fillers are at affordable prices. I mean, fragrances for, for him and for her, for mum, for dad, for your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whoever it is that you're buying for. Even granny likes uh, some nice fragrances at this time of year. So get on in to Chemist Warehouse. But if you're looking for health-related products, then the Sonovus 50 Plus Multi 100 capsules for just $16.24. Go healthy. CoQ10 300 milligrams, 90 capsules. Half price at $36.99 in Austin Vitamin D3 1000 International Units, 300 capsules for just $25.99. Now, Derek, you've got uh, uh, little H and Maeve at home. Uh, there's always some, some illnesses going around. Uh, I'd imagine you've been visiting your local chemist warehouse up in the Hillsville Sanctuary in recent times. We have been, Rob. It's been apocalyptic here for the last two weeks with uh, all sorts of ailments, which uh, we're struggling to get through. But yeah, absolutely, I have to almost go to a chemist warehouse on a daily basis to top up on all the good stuff to keep our family on track. Exactly, lucky you're a VIP there too, mate. Now, in addition to visiting your local chemist warehouse store, order online, click and collect to save time or choose fast delivery for same-day home delivery. T's and C's and charges may apply. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings every single day. Chemist Warehouse, why pay more? Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Great chat with Tracy Holmes just there. Uh, hopefully the Matildas, uh, we see them in Paris uh, in the new year. But uh, a team that we've been watching closely, it's almost sort of at times train wreck viewing. And just when you turn on the TV in the, the wee hours of the morning over here and you're expecting uh, the, the Liverpool Express to to deliver something similar to what they did last year when they, they beat Manchester United 7-0. The exact opposite happens. Did they not turn up? Did Manchester United lift? They certainly had players out, but it was a retrieve for Eric Ten Hag. Is it the first green shoots of brighter days ahead or a stay of execution? The man who uh, covers... Manchester United for the Guardian. Jamie Jackson is on the line, and um, I guess I'll ask you, Jamie. Uh, what What do you think? I mean, w- w- was it Liverpool uh, who who dropped um, their standard, or did United uh, actually turn up? And are we seeing um, uh, a, a, a turning of the corner? Yeah, I don't think um, Liverpool played particularly well because that United performance is kind of what I've seen quite a lot of mm-hmm. um, this season, certainly. And actually, over the sort of years through different managers since Sir Alex Ferguson left in May 2013. Um, so on another day, I think they might have got beaten two or three. Um, I mean, Manchester United, who obviously I see all the time, um, they just don't create many chances these days. It's almost become kind of, the, well, it is the norm and it's become accepted. You know, it, almost, it kind of needs pointing out like I'm doing. So, for example, yesterday, as I can remember, I think there was two maybe proper chances, Ganacho and, and Hoyland. It's not great, really. And it was actually quite odd for me to see Hoyland, their sort of new number nine, £72 million signing, have a clear chance created for him in the Premier League. Because he scored a few in the Champions League. I think it's five before they got knocked out. But in the Premier League, very, very rare. He's not scored yet. I think it's 13, maybe, uh, appearances in the Premier League for, for United. And that chance he had when he went through and hit it with his right. But on the one hand... Yeah, maybe he should score. But on the other hand, he's not getting many chances. So it kind of stands out more as a, as a miss. You know, in a, in a sort of fully functioning team, you'd have you know three or four chances. He put one or two in and no one would remember that. Um, 
So, you know, a very good result for, for, for United, considering they've been tanked 3 0 by um, uh, Bournemouth and then, you know, knocked out of the Champions League by Bayern Munich, you know, the preceding days. Um, I don't know. I mean, is it green shoots or recovery? I've seen it so many times, as I say, with United over the years. One thing I would say, and it seems a bit silly to hang any possible recovery on, but Maynu, Kobe Maynu, the 18-year-old lad who, who sort of now started at Newcastle, Everton and Liverpool, which is, you know, three sort of, let's say, difficult away games, looks very good. Looks a class or maybe two above, say, McTominay, Amrabat. You know, Casemiro's coming back. I can see those two sort of starting now properly. And he just looks, and actually it's the piece I'm going to write today for the Guardian, he just looks like the midfielder they've needed. Basically, the last really good midfielder they've signed was Michael Carrick, right? Which is, what, 2006. I mean, Pogba they tried with, Mkhitaryan they tried with, um, you know, others, uh, Schneiderlin, I could go through them, or Schweinsteiger, who was sort of past it from Bayern Munich. But this lad looks, and I know it's a very small sample size, but it's kind of the trade I'm in and kind of what United, you know, any football teams, and you, you see sort of these performances in one or two games. He just looked class. So maybe this will help, help Eric Ten Hag because he needs a bit of help. Um, Fernandes was, was obviously suspended for yesterday's game. Um, but I'm just looking at the rest of that team. Luke Shaw. So for me, you've got Luke Shaw, Fernandes, Mainu, sounds a bit odd as I say he's on 18, but hopefully... And Hoyland, I'd pick those out with maybe Rashford. Is he going to sort of turn it on again? But the goalkeeper's a big problem, Anana. He just is. He just he was bought on a ticket of very good with his feet. Well, he's not. Basically, every time he, he goes for, say, a long ball, like, say, Edison does for Manchester City, as a sort of, like, you know, aerial pass, a midfielder's pass, he basically kicks it out. I mean, it's, you know, it's comical how bad he is with those passes. And in terms of the actual, you know, being a goalkeeper... He's not, he's not anywhere near David De Gea. Now, David De Gea himself had had a few mistakes in him, you know, shot-stopping, goal-preventing. Goal but he's made a bit of a mistake there, Ten Hag, in my sort of opinion. Yeah, David De Gea gets better and better, doesn't he, for, uh, despite not playing for several months. And I think that the talk is always going to be about the manager while United are in this, this downward spiral. Um but the, the whispers are that, that he's not going anywhere at the moment. They're kind of in a stasis with the, the new ownership and, and structure coming in. And then any incumbent manager will, would also have to deal with a lot of Ten Hag players. You mentioned Anana, for example. There's obviously Anthony, who has um, signed for big money, uh, Ericsson uh, and others. I mean, you know, Ten Hag has actually created some safety for himself in a way by having the ability to buy all these players. And it, it's not just as easy as get Ten Hag out and find uh, get someone else, is it? No, I mean, and it's such a good point uh, because, you know, he himself had to come in and basically do a clear out uh, of, you know, Solskjaer, Mourinho uh, players. And yeah, the next person coming in, if that was to happen, the next manager would have to do the same. Now, you know, um, this Sir Jim Ratcliffe thing that you mentioned there, Derek, is very interesting because, you know, will it go through this week? We're told maybe, but we're basically Christmas, obviously. So I can see it going into January now, this 25% official buyout. He's um, he's going to take control of football policy. I did a story, actually, that when he went in, this is Sir Jim Ratcliffe, in February, to sort of have a look around the club when, you know, when the sale process was in full sort of swing. They had a meeting at the Jimmy Murphy Centre, which is actually where the media go to the training centre at Carrington, you know, like a sort of presentation. And at this presentation, people like 
John Murta, who's the football director, were there and he questioned the Casemiro signing basically because he was 30 years old, 350 grand a, a year, four, four year contract. And he basically raised this, um, you know, as like in a polite way, why, why was this done? This is the sort of thing I, I, I would not necessarily do. Um, so there you go. There's a, a glaring example of what, what we're talking about here. A Ten Hag signing, 30 years old, uh, questioning one of their best players. Now, they weren't happy about the story of the club, but they, they certainly didn't deny it because it, it was true. It was correct. Um, I got told about it from someone who was in the room, you know, at, at this meeting. Um, and that's just one sort of example of, yeah, the sort of iffy football transfer policy under Ten Hag. I mean, you know, yesterday was a great example. Scott McTominay was the captain because, you know, obviously Fernandes was suspended. He's a player that was for sale in the summer. Maguire has come back into the team. He was for sale. He would have gone to West Ham if they could have agreed this six or seven million pound uh, compensation in salary sh- sort of shortfall that he would have you know, taken a cut in wages at West Ham. Um, you know, Varane had basically bombed out since uh, the, the, the Manchester derby, I think it was late October until the last couple of games. He looked good, didn't he, yesterday? Now, what is all this is a symptom of is the fact that he doesn't know who his best team is, his best players and the style of play. So it's a bit of a mishmash stroke mess. And it is interesting because at Ajax, Eric Ten Hag, and also Go Ahead Eagles, his, his club before that, that he managed, he was known as, a, as a, a guy who coaches really well, but also knows a system of play. You know, you know, Ajax have a way of playing it. It could be a little bit mythologised, you know, uh, exaggerated, but they do. And he, he, you know, he, he sort of won a couple of Aerie Divisie titles there. The, the Dutch Cup got into the Champions League semi-final uh, because he, he had a pattern of play. And, and you just look at the United and it's just like, wow. I mean, yesterday they were basically playing like Stoke City or Everton, or sorry, Burnley under Sean Dyche. You know what I mean? Just sort of like, you know, we'll just sort of dig in and hope for a draw. That's poor. And that is, it's, it's also baffling. He actually got asked this. On Friday, Eric Ten Hag, why why this has happened by a Dutch journalist who'd come over, and he, you know, he, he, the way the question was phrased was, is it more complicated at Manchester United? He, he answered it not really with an answer, just said no, it's still eleven v eleven over here. He sort of laughed it off, if you like. But yeah, I mean, I I don't I think when when Sir Jim Ratcliffe does go in there, I think he's probably got about a month, Eric Ten Hag, and I think he's a very good point, but I think he may well get rid of him. I'm not saying he should. I still give him a chance, Ten Hag. But it's sort of how long is a piece of string? Because, you know, last season they won the Carabao Cup, finished third, got to the FA Cup final. It was all there for him. He, You know, he is a great first season. And the summer was a disaster in the transfer market. Anana, Mason Mount, been injured. But why did they sign him? Could, could go through, through it all, really. Amrabat is a loan signing, but he wanted him. He just, I mean, I don't know if you happened to catch the game, but there was all sorts of moments, you know, like a simple... Five yard pass along the line to a teammate, he just kicks it straight out. You know, he was doing a lot of that Amrabat. So the whole thing is a bit of a mess, really. Um, they're at West Ham, I think it is, yeah, on Saturday away. Then at the Villa game at home on Boxing Day, which I, I will do because I do all the home games for City or United. Um, then they're away in Champions League. So who knows what will happen because I don't think he knows. And that's, you know, all these problems we're talking about the dodgy player, player recruitment. The lack of pattern of play, the sort of what is his sort of tactics, who is in favour, who is not, is all because it's such a mess, basically. It's one of the the biggest things, I suppose, and it encapsulates United is Bruno Fernandes because he's 
you know, he's arguably one of the most gifted players in in the league. If he was available on a free transfer, every top club in Europe would be trying to sign him. And of course, he's been given the captain's armband. He missed the game um, this weekend. And obviously, McTominay came in, who in a way is the opposite of Fernandez because he's, uh, you know, been brought through been brought through the academy. He's not as flashy, but he's also, you know, full, true-hearted, full-blooded player. Um, and, and Fernandez obviously has been criticised for his body language, his leadership. You know, I suppose it's two questions. I mean, where, you know, should... should United persists with McTominay because because there's a, a leader there that they can that they can build a team around and you know it has the, the Fernandez project come to an end do the negatives outweigh the positives that he brings into the team well I, I my, my view is is I don't really see too many negatives with him um this this body language thing which yeah you're right is sort of well documented. I don't really get that other than a player who's frustrated, a leader who's frustrated, he wants to tr- sort of try and, you know, get an edge for his team. I think he's probably the best outfield player there. Um, McTominay for me, it's interesting. When, when Fernandes is in the team and McTominay is, he, he actually asked McTominay to play kind of uh, as Paul Pogba was supposed to, as the number eight. Um, and, you know, whatever the faults of Pogba, I think he's a better player than McTominay. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, if you put Fernandez in, you, you just kind of just said it. Then, if you put him in City or Liverpool's team, he doesn't become the, the sort of old, the, almost like the saviour theory. He becomes another very good player in a very good squad. And I think this has been the, the issue at United over the years. You know, when Pogba was there, he was asked to do it all. You know, um, and he was he wasn't as consistent as Fernandez, McTominay. I don't know. I was looking at him yesterday, and this is why I sort of said about Mainu. In sort of tight situations where your technique comes out, you know, sort of ch- chesting a, a difficult ball down and sort of making space and, and, and you know, laying it off, McTominay can be lacking. Mainu did it very early on in the game. And I don't want to, as I say, exaggerate Mainu to sort of, it's sort of import too much because he's just starting off. But, you know, the difference between him and and McTominay stroke Amrabat technically, all, all very good players. I think we all know just seem to get an extra split second. They're not that you know they just do. They, they don't get caught. They don't make mistakes. They're just just very very slick. And Mainu for me, he has that. McTominay is a sort of good squad player um, who I don't think Ten Hag. I think Ten Hag's been surprised actually that his contribution this season because as I say he was for sale. He might have got to Bayern Munich actually on loan. I think he was as well in the summer. I think he's been surprised that he's come in and scored a few goals. And fair play to McTominay for doing it. I know Scott McTominay through sort of people who know him back in my hometown, a place called Lancaster. He certainly lives a life. You know, he's a proper professional, extra gym sessions, very focused. It's just football, 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 and always has been. Um, and, that, and that's kind of why he was made captain yesterday. And also he was made captain on, on tour uh, in the final game in Las Vegas, I think against Dortmund, when actually Maguire... Who'd, who'd had the captaincy taken off him that summer, at the start of the summer, was also in the team and Fernandes was not. It was a bit of a sort of body blow that to Maguire at the time. Um, and now they're both back in the team and sort of, you know, I, I know he wasn't playing yesterday, Maguire, but I'm just sort of saying there's two massive examples of this sort of interesting player um, status under Ten Hag, where these two players were sort of going to be leaving and now they've become uh, main men. I think, again, they could both go next summer. Um Listen, if you widen it out, if you zoom out a bit, what te- the, 
one of the issues or the issue Ten Hag's got is they haven't got as much money as they used to United because the debt is catching up with the Glazers. You've got this FFP thing. Casemiro and Varane. Now, again, this might have changed after yesterday, but I did a story at the start of last week saying that Casemiro and Varane are for sale in January. And again, I put it to the club, no argument, you know, completely, uh, you know, correct. But what is that saying about the whole recruitment, but also the money? They need the money for the FFP thing. So he's dealing with that Ten Hag. And when you said before about Ten Hag having, um, you know, having sort of a bit of protection, you're completely correct. But the other thing he has, okay, Ratcliffe's coming in, 25% ownership, but the Glazers are still there. And there's no way, right, that as basically de facto still 75% owners of the club. They don't, they want, they're not still going to have a massive influence because, okay, so Jim Ratcliffe has control of the football policy. But if you think about it, everything at that club impacts the football policy. So the whole commercial operation, you know, impacts how much money there is to spend on transfers. So he's still managing that as well, Ten Hag. It is a very um, difficult job for him. And you'd like to think that Ratcliffe or whoever it is who has this decision understands that as you basically said Derek earlier whoever comes in have the same dynamics the same issues the same um challenges let's say but th this is why I go back to this style of play thing Deserby at Brighton yes as I, I think I think it's less time Eddie Howe at Newcastle has a slightly longer time and you can both see how those two teams play but what I would say is neither of those two teams Brighton and Newcastle have won anything in the, the same time span whereas you know Ten Hag has he did and so you know, it's this whole thing again. Who, who's going to call the shots? You know, fo football, like all sort of proper sport, you know, elite sport, it can sort of change, can't it, on a moment or a or a sort of a match or a, a decision. And, you know, Arteta at Arsenal, many Arsenal fans wanted him out, you know, two two seasons ago. I think they're actually in the, if you remember this, they're in the bottom, they're in the relegation zone at one point of one season under him. And he pulled them out of it. So there's an example but I don't know, United, everything's magnified. I could sort of really see it going either way. And that's why I said if Ratcliffe goes in there and he doesn't do well for two or three weeks, he probably will sort of pull the trigger on him. You mentioned the um, the magnification. And just for a final brief one from me, how, how difficult is it um, when, particularly the way the media is set up in, for this, with the ex-players and the power that they have, particularly, obviously, Gary Neville, is seen as one of the most respected pundits on the game, very forthright with his views. Um, Keane is there looking like he's about to immolate at any, mo at any moment. Um, sc scowling at scowling at the screen. Paul Scholes is another one. He kind of pops in, pops in and out. I mean, it can't be easy, an environment for Ten Hag or the squad, when all they're reading or seeing is clips from Sky Sports of Roy Keane talking about standards or... Gary Neville talk about it's not good enough for Manchester United Football Club. Yeah, not a very good point. It's another sort of strand of this. Because if you if you could imagine, you know, everything you just described there not existing, suddenly a whole load of pressure, high profile, profile, as you say, relentless scrutiny is not there. You know, it. it I mean, it is twenty four seven, but that is kind of. You know, to flip it around, that is kind of why if you if you are the person to manage to pull it up, pull off, you know, a, a proper title challenge, or you know, or or win, then 
it goes the other way. You know, you're, you're basically a god, you're immortal. And if you're a sort of Ted Arg, you're the manager who's done it. And it's interesting, he said in an interview recently that his friends had warned him not to take this job because of basically what we're describing, including uh, that part, Derek. Um, the fact that it's just sort of just people, the media with like Skulls and Keane and Gary Neville. Um, but he, he wanted to take it on. And I think that was interesting that he said that. I think he wanted that out there almost to sort of say, you know, this is how brave I am and I'm not running away from this. But you're right. And it was interesting. And, you know, yesterday I felt Neville almost went too far in kind of criticising United um, with regard to sort of, I mean, I know I've just done it, but with regard to Anana and et cetera, et cetera, only because he's such a powerful voice. It almost felt like he was, because he was at Liverpool, he was sort of overcompensating, almost like he had to be seen to be sort of fair because he's obviously a United person. You know, I, I get that, but it's sort of, I don't know. If you're Ten Hag, it's not very helpful. But at the same time, what can you do when you can see him sort of week in, week out, you know, stink, stinking the place out? And I think a lot of the, the criticism comes from frustration because they're obviously fans, you know, they obviously played for the club. And, you know, he's from Bury Neville. He's a United fan. Skull certainly is. He's from Oldham. Keane, I don't know what, you know, he grew up a Spurs fan, but obviously he's United through and through for what he did for the club. Um, so a lot of it's to do with that. And it was interesting, Keane, I don't know if you saw, he had a go at Van Dyke for his comments about sort of saying, you know, United were buzzing to get a draw. Um, but that in itself, I think, was a bit of a feather in the cap for United players in 10 hours because, you know, they don't set Van Dyke, who's obviously frustrated. Um, but yeah, it, you know, I've been here so many times under so many managers post-Ferguson. You know, I came in halfway through the Mancini-Aguero, you know, title-winning season, you know, the sort of 93-94 uh, seconds winner so I've seen a lot there and I do give Ten Hag of, of all the managers they've had in since Ferguson I give him the best chance I think he's got the best profile tool skill set but you know will he be given time I'm not so sure yeah that's the the question isn't it mate um, speaking of time we're about to go into Christmas, Jamie, and to take a little tangent before we let you go, um, many of our listeners may not be aware that um, you're also an accomplished author. And uh, and a little while ago, you, you put us on to your Substack. Now, a lot of people might not know about Now, the irony of this is that when we were confirming um, our, our chat this week, I was sitting in the comedy theatre in Melbourne about to watch someone else. who They didn't <laughs> yes. call it Substacks back in those days when Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol. But but his style of writing was in a very similar style, wasn't it? That he he submitted uh, segments of, of That's his right. books yes. um, and readers would pick up the newspapers. So this is a modern version, let's call it, of Charles Dickens' style, isn't it? So so tell us a little bit about it. The, the book is Adventures in Love and you don't even have to wait because you've completed uh, the full story. So if our listeners want to uh, enjoy some holiday reading, uh, tell us how they can get onto it. And, and a snapshot yeah, it's a good about call, actually. It's a good call, Rob, about the Charles Dickens, because he did serialise his mm. stuff. And that's basically what this substack is. It's just a website mm. um, that I have. We have all my writing on there. And actually, if any of the listeners are United fans, my Eric Ten Hag book is on there. And it's about mm. last season when they were successful. Yes. So actually, that might be a more interesting read. But Adventures in Love is a story of... Oh, the, the acid house, late late eighties, um, uh, early nineties, um, in in um, uh, in England, where two sort of seventeen year olds rip off a load of E's, sell them at the last warehouse party ever. Mm-hmm. That's the plan, anyway. And they're going to then jet off to a beefer to live in the sun for the rest Good of their ideas. lives. <laughs> um, and because the the final part has just been out on 
Sunday serialized it, you can now have a PDF of the whole novel if people mm-hmm. fancy. So for four ninety nine, they get the whole novel plus mm-hmm. the Eric Ten Hag thing and all, all the other stuff. There's a weekly newsletter on there. But if they just want to have a free subscription and have a little look, they don't have to pay anything. Then you just type Jamie Jackson Substack into Google mm-hmm. uh, and and take a look if people are interested. But yeah, it's um yeah, it is very much like Dickens or sort of that mm-hmm. sort of. Um, serialized. I'd forgotten about that because I've read a lot of Charles Dickens' yes. books. But yeah, that is how he started off. So I- I'm obviously a-, a much better writer than Charles Dickens. Of course. So people that's should give it a go. implying that. That's fun, Jamie. And, and look, uh, hey, hey, um, the, the, the idea, though, is that it, it's a bit of a cliffhanger type situation, but y- your book is done. Now, yeah, so, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. And I'm sorry, actually, just to pick up on it, the record soap operas kind of a similar to the sort of Dickens idea that's maybe mm, almost mm. where they got it from. You know, soap operas always have yes, cliffhangers, yes. like episodes, episodic. Yeah. So if people read it that way, mm. yeah, there's 25 parts, um, probably take you about five minutes each week, you know, the mm. weekly bits, they mm. want to do it that way. And yeah, it's sort of like thriller-esque. And me as a writer of fiction, very interesting to do it this way as well, because you sort of learn how to edit slightly different. But, you know, at heart, it's supposed to be a story that you actually want to read. It's fun. Mm-hmm. You know, I might warm the cockles over the, yes. the well, over this, you know, sort of Christmas uh, period. But um, yeah, g- give it a go. It's, it's, you know, it's a bit of fun. And, you know, Substack's an interesting phenomenon because, you know, it's like the podcast we're doing now or mm-hmm. sort of YouTube. It's kind of almost like the modern media. But as you mm-hmm. rightly say, it's actually nothing's really new, is it? It's a bit of a throwback, no. really, to sort of Victorian times. Yeah, 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 and uh, uh, every, everything old's new again. Hey, hey, Jamie, Merry Christmas to you. Um, thanks Thank for, you. for coming on. You're really, really generous with your time and, and uh, you know, listening to your answers uh, as, as Derek was sort of asking them. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating sort of fireside chat insight made into it. So, uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of the season. We'll, we'll, we'll touch base with you in the new year. Definitely. Thanks ever so much. No worries, Jamie Jackson from The Guardian. Okay, stick around. Walk up corner next on Box to Box. Well, 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 everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices. Everyone's going to save a dollar or two. Everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices, yeah. Can you hear those jingle bells are jingling, Michael? Oh, I can. I bet you Sanders. around the corner. Yeah. Stuffed turkey, the honey glazed ham with all the cloves. You got uh, it. Not to mention the... Um, the stuffing, Rob. Now, tell us about the Hoyt herbs and spices that go into the traditional turkey stuffing. There'd be a fair bit in there, wouldn't there? I, I, absolutely. I mean, you've got uh, the, the, those traditional flavours like thyme and uh, and cardamom, coriander Rosemary might be. Maybe. Probably not coriander to a lesser extent. I think nutmeg and uh, those sorts of flavours. Um, but uh, in your ham, of course, you've got your cloves that you, you want to stud the, about the, the ham. pudding, Rob? Oh, well, the pudding, it's probably a little bit too late to be making a pudding. But if you had been organised, then anise, cloves, ginger, cardamom, uh, nutmeg, allspice, vanilla, cinnamon. They're, they're the sorts of spices. Uh, are they the sort of flavours that you enjoy with your traditional uh, plum pudding, Derek? Yeah, uh, certainly. And I mean, I'm lucky this year. We we cooked Christmas dinner last year. It's not our turn this year. We're going to the in-laws and my mother-in-law's a fantastic cook. And I know that her um, mighty... Uh, pantry is packed to the gunnels with uh, Hoyt Serves and Spices product. So, because uh, I'm always on it whenever I'm up, whenever I'm up there, that, that's that's what she needs to do. Uh, she can, you know, re- refill everything using the packets from from uh, Hoyt's and keep those jars and keep keep her carbon footprint low. And she can make uh, amazing dishes too. So I'll, I'll report back on the 27th when we're reporting on next show. 
Yeah, excellent. Rob, does Sandra exactly. make a bit of brandy sauce on top of the pudding for you? Uh, so uh, I'm tending to be the one that makes those sauces, yeah. So I like to like flame it out off the the fry pan and just uh, yeah. uh, and then get um, get you that. You don't flavor. mix the brandy and the cream and no, no, my yeah, mum yeah. she puts the brandy and the cream. She has a couple of swigs on the way through. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's obligatory over Christmas, isn't it, Edge? Um, it yeah. They, they, so these are all the flavors that make the Christmas meal so wonderful around the family table. You can't just have a hunk of ham or a pudding. You need all the flavors and the spice and the herbs that go with it. And where do you get them? You get them from Coles, you get them from Woolworths, you get them from all the good independent supermarkets. A very bon Natale from our uh, our family, friends, so the Accados, great mate Johnny Accardo and all of those at Hoyts wishing you, our listeners, a wonderful Christmas. You'll be happy with Hoyts. Fill those empties with Hoyts and spices, yeah. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box, extended edition of Box to Box. We did go a bit over time with Jamie Jackson, but but what a great um, chat it was. Um, he's a really interesting guy. Um, and uh, look, before we get into it, guys, for our listeners, um, we're going to take a, a little break uh, and mix it up a little over Christmas. Uh, um, so we are, we're going to do our next show. We're going to record next Wednesday, uh, the, uh, the 27th, so the day after Boxing Day. And then we're going to take a break for... Uh, well, about a week and a half, and our next show after that will be on the eighth. So, so uh, we'll just do a one-out show on the twenty-seventh, and uh, uh, and that'll drop on the morning of the the twenty-eighth for you. And we'll recap everything that's been going on, and we'll preview what's about to come up uh, over this busy busy time. Uh, uh, does that uh, does that make sense, Michael? Certainly does. We might have a special guest on the uh, the, sh- the the end of the year show. We'll. Um... Uh, well, don't, we might, don't, don't break the don't, no, no, don't okay. uh, bury the but, lead. Yeah, but no, we case. might go a little bit longer for that show, Rob, and sort of reflect okay. on all the things that uh, caught our attention during 2023. Can't believe okay. it's the end of 2023. Right, amazing. It is. Um, now, now briefly, we, we talked about the Matildas with Tracy. Um, now, the next generation is coming through, and uh, uh, there's a lot to look forward to. So, uh, the AFC Asian Cup draw. Give us a, a brief snapshot of that edge. Well, the AFC Asian Cup for the under-20 or the young Matildas is um, a really important tournament because if you finish in the top um, three, you get to go to the FIFA Women's World Cup for under-20s. Now, this event has typically been a disaster for young Matildas in Australia. Leah Blaney famously copped eight and nine goals against Korea and Japan in successive games uh, a few years ago in Thailand. So... Um, she'll be looking for redemption. Um, this group's been doing really well. Um, they recently went to China and had two good wins over the Chinese um, uh, on Chinese soil. Obviously, Jessica Nash, who's playing her trade for Melbourne Victory so successfully, is the captain of this team. Um, and there's just stock full, just smashed full of uh, A-League stars in this young Matildas under-20 team. So uh, the event is in March of next year in Uzbekistan. It'll be cold. Um, and believe it or not, we've been uh, drawn in what I consider a very tough group, probably the group of death. We've got the host nations, Uzbekistan. We've got our nemesis, Korea Republic. Um, we do, we've do. we never done well against the Korea Republic uh, teams at, at this age level. Um, that'll be a big test. And then we've got Taiwan or Chinese Taipei, as the football officials like to call them. Uh, so Australia will need to get over the home hosts Uzbekistan and Taiwan to go through to the knockout phase and give themselves a chance of going to the World Cup. It's an interesting draw for the young Matildas and the challenges ahead of them. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, a question without notice, a um, big uh, question mark literally hangs over Matty Ryan. And I want to ask this uh, of you, Derek, um, you know, uh, uh, one of the uh, – the, the most renowned goalkeepers had uh, had a, had well a couple of careers in in the English top flight, uh, you know three hundred plus games for Chelsea, but also uh, another hundred with the Gunners. Uh, Peter Cech um, had uh, had you know, some pretty significant head injuries over time. Now Matty Ryan's uh, fractured his cheekbone only a week ago, uh, um, and Derek, in your observations, goalkeepers coming back from that sort of injury, the the Asian Cups on, uh, are, are we uh, clutching at straws to think that he, that he's uh, he's going to be fit? to come back for, for, for the one position um, in, in the team that's most likely to get head knocks um, or, uh, or, or have you seen players get these sorts of injuries and come back uh, um, uh, at, at their best? Yeah, Peter is an interesting scenario. I mean, he, his injury was, was very severe. You know, it was a fr- you know, fracture in his skull and, and obviously he came back with specialist headgear um and look i still think he was an excellent goalkeeper after that i don't think he his standards dropped in particular he just looked a bit different on on the pitch with, with matt ryan i don't know a huge amount apart about his injury it's nasty some of the photos that he put up on uh, x uh didn't didn't look great uh, my impression of him though is he's he's a really competitive guy i don't see this sort of affecting his mentality to want to keep goal for Australia. It'll just be whether medically he's allowed to and whether there's any technology or protection that he can wear. We've often seen face masks for um, sort of cheek uh, injuries for, for outfield players who are, are often putting their their head in harm's way. So I don't think it's, you know, I don't, without seeing the actual medical report, but I don't, I don't think it's um, uh, out of question that... Um, that, that he could do it. And I think probably what the soccer is have to balance up is, is it worth taking the risk with Ryan uh, versus, uh, you know, bringing in Glover or uh, Andrew Redmayne or Danny Vukovic or, or, or um, well, he retired, obviously, so he can't can't come in. Mitch Langerak, obviously, has been uh, virtually in exile since he snubbed uh, last year's World Cup. So I think it'll be a combination of what who have they got to bring in and, where is that injury at? But I think if they can get him into a position where he can play and, and the medical staff are confident with the precautions that they're taking in terms of, and also how the injury has gone, then I can't see him affecting his performance. He's a wholehearted bloke mm-hmm. and uh, they're made of tough stuff, goalkeepers. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'd expect him to play if he can. H? Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, there is this, um, the, the success of the Socceroos at the last World Cup in Qatar and, um, you know, Graham Arnold's uh, leadership of this team has masked over what is the biggest conundrum and should be an incredible focus of media spotlight is just why Mitch Langerak didn't go to the World Cup last year. Mm-hmm. Eric, Eric said uh, Derek said he, he snubbed and he didn't. Uh, Mitch Langerak was not selected. Um, and there is good judges say that Mitch Langerak should be challenging Matt Ryan for the number one spot. Now, if Matt Ryan goes down... Um, Andrew Redmayne's been in horrible form. You cannot select him to go. Um, and Danny Vukovic has retired. So the two, the number two and number three goalkeepers that were at the World Cup in Qatar uh, are really not in the frame. You then simply have Joe Gauci, who has you know, been in recent camps, and the Charlton Athletic custodian, Ashley Maynard Brewer, 
uh, and then Man- uh, Melbourne City's goalkeeper Tom Glover, who's really getting a game for Middlesbrough. I tell you what, Mitch Langerak's been the best goalkeeper in the J League for the last five years, maybe longer. Mm. If he's not the next number one, I don't know who is. And there's got to be questions asked about this. What is the situation? There is scuttlebutt that Matt Ryan were felt so threatened by Mitch Langerak that he didn't want him at the World Cup last last time because he, he just felt it might hit his confidence. Whether that's true or not, who knows? But it's 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 a really interesting development. This one, we hope Matt gets there because he's been so good for us. He's our skipper, all that sort of stuff. But gee, there's a story behind it. I'm sure. All right. Well, we'll need to maybe do a bit of digging around before that uh, that squad's announced. All right, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, let's uh, let's keep uh, anything we've got left over for stoppage time. That's why we created that show. Edge, thanks again, mate. Thanks, Rob. Derek, excellent. Great chat with Jamie there. Yeah, enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. And Adam Maloney, our man behind the buttons. Well, uh, well, it's a few days out from Christmas still, but we're going to uh, we're going to come back for stoppage time. One uh, one more show before uh, we take our little break and and resume in the the middle of next week after Christmas. So, um, if you have a moment, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your favourite shows, and make sure you subscribe to Box to Box Stoppage Time and Offside. Tweet us at Box to Box NTS on X, and make sure you follow us and like us on Facebook, and join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.